Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to conclude our study through this monumental chapter by looking at verses 50 to 58 and uh, see what Paul has for us with regard to the resurrection. We come to the end of this rather extensive and definitive chapter on our resurrection hope this morning. And perhaps as you've been going through this with us and um, listening to these messages, we've been working through this, racking our brains, trying to pull apart all these details about the future. Perhaps you thought to yourself some point along the way, what does all of this matter? What, does, what is the point of it? Whatever's going to happen is going to happen in the future. So whether I grasp the details of it or not, um, you know, it doesn't really matter. Let's just let the theological eggheads in their ivory towers kind of yell back and forth at one another about these biblical events, and the rest of us will, will get down to the practical business of living for Christ in the present. If you have uh, had this thought, it's a common objection that's raised when it comes to eschatology or the doctrine of last things, future things. And if that's you this morning, or maybe that's not you, but, but you are sympathetic to that kind, of, uh, that kind of thinking when it comes to last things, uh, I want to gently encourage you to think differently about it. There are, it's true, there are some things in Scripture that are um, indeed uh, more clear than others. There are things that are less clear. And without question, the specific details of future things uh, isn't as important and universally confessed as, say, the content of the gospel or um, the triunity of God or the inerrancy and authority of Scripture, th- some of those key doctrines that we, that we know and, and are almost universally confessed among God's people. But, but that does not mean that when the Bible speaks about the future that we ought to reflexively and immediately kind of take our hands and just be like, not my concern. No, I don't need to be worried about that. Uh, and here's why. Doctrine, including doctrine of last things, is destiny. We made this point earlier. What we believe about God affects how we live before him day in and day out. And I want to just illustrate the point to you, um, particularly uh, from a handful of of portions of the New Testament. First, in 1 Thessalonians, uh, as Paul writes to them in chapter 4, he says, we do not want you to be uninformed. And uh, he says that in verse 13 of chapter 4, and then he proceeds to explain to them the specific details of what's going to unfold at Christ's coming. And he goes through all this stuff, and he says, both. and then he says, he points out that, um, you know, when, when Christ returns, both the church on earth and believers who've already died in Christ will uh, be gathered together with him. Now, the question is, why was he compelled to disclose those details? And verse 13 tells us, he doesn't want us, he says, so that you will not grieve as, those, uh, as do those who have no hope. Or in verse 18, so that we might comfort one another with these words. So, so the way we live in the present, in, the, in, in this right now, in, in each and every day, you know, whether we would be uh, captivated by grief or whether we would um, need comfort, that is rightly shaped by a true and right understanding of what God has revealed to us in his word about the future. Um, Chapter 5, if you just move down to chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, 
Uh, he speaks about the day of the Lord and the any momentness of the rapture, which sets all the day of the Lord events in motion. And he says in verse 6, he says, I'm telling you this so that you would not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. So here again, we see that the way we live in the present uh, with a measure of alertness, a measure of sober-mindedness, that is connected to a right and true understanding of what God has revealed to us about the future. If you look over at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul describes all the events of the tribulation and uh, the rise of Antichrist, the man of lawlessness prophesied by Daniel. Why does he feel the need to disclose these details about God's future plans at the end of the age? Again, he tells us in verse 15, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. So the way we live in the present is rightly shaped by a true and right understanding of what God has revealed to us in his word about the future. Look over at Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, chapters 9, 10, and 11. Paul is addressing his words to a primarily Gentile church in Rome, and he gives specific details about God's future purpose and plans for Israel, ethnic, national Israel. Paul's kinsmen, as he says in verse 9, according to the flesh. And he makes clear that God has not rejected his covenant people because he's faithful to his word. And because God is faithful to his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there is a day when there will be a recognition and a turning en masse by the Jewish people to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And the question might be asked, why was Paul compelled to share all these details about the future? Well, he tells us in chapter 11 of verse 18, excuse me, verse 18 of chapter 11, he says, do not be arrogant toward the native branches. Do not be arrogant. And that's, he's speaking about Israel there. That's a word picture that he's just attributed to Israel. Verse 25, I do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. So again, the way we live in the present, walking with humility, uh, not becoming self-assured, that is directly connected to a right and true understanding of what God is going to do in the future. And again, in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3, the book begins, and John says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. If you and I are going to hear and heed and, you know, the things written in what follows in this book, this letter, or this, you know, this, really it's a book, it's the compilation of, of letters to churches in the beginning, it goes without saying that we would understand the meaning of the book and therefore be able to respond rightly in view of it for the benefit of our souls. So the way we live in the present, according to John in Revelation, is going to be shaped by a true and right understanding of what God has revealed to us in his word about the future. And so when some of the Corinthian believers, to go back to our text, began running around saying, there is no resurrection of the body, and that our earthly lives draw to a, when our earthly lives draw to a close, our bodies go into the ground and our spirits carry on in eternity in some kind of colorless, shadowy existence, that pastorally provokes Paul to respond and to write what he writes here in chapter 
15, because it has a practical effect on how God's people will live in the present. To deny the resurrection we saw earlier in the chapter, it it makes our preaching invalid. It undermines our faith. He says it discredits our testimony because we're making claims that there is a resurrection when there is no resurrection. And he says it abandons us to our sin because Christ is... uh, would have died just like every other human being who's ever died. And ultimately, he, makes, he says it makes us the most pitiable people on earth. So it has an effect in the present on us. But not only that, the denial of the resurrection made so much of what was going on in Corinth, in Paul's own life and ministry, as well as what's happening in our religious experience in the church. It makes all of that inconsistent and incoherent and really futile. If you look at chapter 15 and verse 32, at the end, he says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And then he continues on in verses 33 and 34, and he says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning For some have no knowledge of God, I speak this to your shame. So, again, this underscores that right living in the present, uh, putting off sin, uh, not associating with those who speak false doctrine, which is really what's implied by the bad company um, uh, statement there in that quotation, uh, that is connected to, in the present, to right understanding about the future. They, they could not conceptualize what kind of a body God would give us, will give us in the resurrection. They couldn't conceptualize how God could possibly raise our bodies from the, ga- the grave when they've turned to dust. And rather than ask Paul for insight and, and wisdom and how to understand all that, um, they just sort of, you know, washed their hands of it and said, well, I don't think there is such a thing as a resurrection or it's not going to happen. And so Paul, last week we saw in verses 36 to 49, showed them that God has indeed purposed to raise us from the dead, and we can understand what that's going to be like by looking at nature and looking at the scriptures. We saw parallels in nature and parallels in the scriptures that affirm and explain the resurrection of the body. He used analogies of a seed and a plant. You know, a seed doesn't look anything like the plant that it becomes. Um, And he talks about uh, angelic bodies and natural earthly bodies. He talks about the sun, moon, and the stars. All of those things have differing bodies with differing glories. And he does this to help us understand and wrap our minds around what kind of bodies God is going to give us in the resurrection. We said it's only as we come to grips with this reality of differing bodies and differing glories that we are able to understand what is going to happen with our resurrection of the body. And we learned some details. What will that resurrection body be like? We saw last Sunday, it will be imperishable, no longer subject to decay ever again. It is uh, far surpassing anything we could attain to in this life because it is filled with glory. It is beaming with splendor. He also mentioned that uh, it will be imbued with power, having a capacity to affect and accomplish what we set our hearts to do. And he also tells us that our resurrection bodies will be spiritual, not in the sense of immaterial, but in the sense of filled with the Holy Spirit. 
and controlled entirely by the Holy Spirit. So our resurrection life in glorified physical bodies pictures a mode of existence that's purposeful, that is dynamic, and that is a a blessed, if you will, crescendo of embodied life together with Christ and with his people in a new heaven and a new earth. He then went on in verses 45 to 49 uh, to show us the parallels from Scripture. And we saw that the first Adam and the last Adam um, are kind of heads of individual humanities. And Paul's argument is simply this. All the descendants of Adam have natural bodies. That's us now in this world. And all the descendants of Christ who are united to him by faith will have spiritual bodies, physical bodies perfected in glory, controlled entirely by the Holy Spirit. And he says, if we're, if we're united to Christ by faith, one day our natural perishable bodies inherited from Adam will be transformed into heavenly glorified bodies that we inherit through Christ. So as indisputably as we've borne the earthiness of Adam in the life to come, we shall indisputably bear the heavenliness of our Lord. Christ, of course, being the example and template that our resurrection bodies will follow. So the victory belongs to Christ and to his people. That, that's where we ended last week, and it's to that victory that Paul turns our focus in the final verses that we're going to look at this morning in verses 50 to 58. He says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Now, all that Paul has said in this chapter reaches a triumphant final verse, beginning in verse 50 to 58, as Paul reiterates what we'll call in verses 50 to 53, the mystery of our resurrection. So that's kind of the first point in our outline this morning. We're going to see in 50 to 53, the mystery of our resurrection. In the beginning of verse 50, Paul sweeps aside all doubt that those who belong to Christ are forever creatures of flesh and blood. That's simply not the case. We are not always flesh and blood. When that day comes, we will be changed. We will no longer have earthly bodies liable to death and to decay. He says, I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Flesh and blood is just a figurative way of referring to life in this physical existence that you and I experience every day, right? It's a reminder of our corruption. It's a reminder of our weakness in our earthly bodies. And the candidness of verse 50 
that flesh and blood cannot participate in the kingdom is meant to, I guess, erase in the minds of the reader or any of us this idea that, that resurrection is, is kind of a crude and foolish reanimation of our earthly bodies. That's simply not the case. Because that which is flesh and blood, that which is perishable, cannot enter the kingdom of God, it means that neither the living nor the dead at Christ's coming will enter that kingdom as they are in this life. So the, so the flesh and blood body that you and I have as believers is not the flesh and blood body that will belong to us in eternity. And God's people said, amen. Like, I don't want this body forever. Both, those, both, those living and dead must be changed. So what's that going to look like? How will that unfold? How does it work? Well, Paul tells us in verse 50 and 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. You may be looking at that term mystery in the New Testament. That always refers to something concealed in the mind of God in ages past, but has now been disclosed through his word. Um, the church is a mystery in the Old Testament. You, you won't find the church in the pages of the Old Testament. In fact, Paul makes it clear in Ephesians chapter 3 that uh, in verse 3 he says, uh, I'm letting, no, letting you know about the revelation that was made known to me, the mystery that I wrote before in brief. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. What is this mystery? Verse 6, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the church is not in the Old Testament. It is a mystery that has since been revealed, that we as Jew and Gentile are made partakers of the new covenant blessings, and therefore we are the body of Christ, as we read earlier in Ephesians 1. The gospel is, is a mystery, the, at least the specifics of it. Not that God would rescue us. There's um, allusions to the gospel all over the Old Testament. But the, the time, the place, the exact person through whom Messiah's earthly mission would be accomplished, that was a mystery in the Old Testament. We didn't know the specifics of it other than just a few select details. And Paul talks about this in Romans 16. He says, Now to him who is able to teach you, excuse me, to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Christ Jesus, and that, that accords to the revelation of the mystery, and he discloses the, what that mystery is, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but has now been manifest. It's the gospel. That reality was not clear in the Old Testament. The kingdom of heaven is a mystery least some of the details of it. And that's why Jesus preached in parables. Mark 4, and when he was saying to them, to you it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, they get everything in parables. The point is, a mystery is something that was known before, but has uh, unknown before, but has now become known to God's people through his word. And so when Paul discloses, as he does here in the beginning of um, our text, these details about the resurrection, they're a mystery. 
These are things that the Corinthians could never have worked out for themselves. It was necessary for God to reveal them to us. And what is this mystery? Verse 51, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Now, when he says we, he means we as believers. He's not saying him personally. He didn't think or didn't know anyway if Christ would return in his lifetime, though it was certainly possible. He's saying Christians who are alive at that future day, the reality is some of them will not die like a natural man dies. Notice that the concern that he addresses here is the opposite of what he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, where he, the concern is addressed uh, to those who had already died in Christ. And the concern was, well, did they miss out? Are they disadvantaged somehow because, well, they died and Christ hasn't come back? And his point is that, no, that's not the case. Here, though, he's addressing that concern from the perspective of those who are living, that they are not disadvantaged, that if, if Christ returns in our lifetime, we will not miss out. Paul has just said that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So how then can they enter the kingdom? And the answer is, we will all be changed, transformed. The fact of the matter is that whether we're counted among those who are alive when Christ returns or whether we die before that day, we will all be changed. How does that process unfold? Will it be some kind of long, drawn-out process like a, like a butterfly going into a cocoon and emerging months later? Is this? No, no, it's not, like, it's not a long, drawn-out process at all. He's just used the analogy of a seed and a plant, so, so he he's, understands that there might be some confusion. They might think that this is kind of a, a thing that unfolds gradually, but he says, no, that's not what happens at all. Verse 52, it happens in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. It's, it's the opposite of a long, drawn-out process. It is literally as fast as the human mind can conceptualize. In a moment, which is a translation of the English word Adam. That's where we get our English word Adam from, is that which cannot be divided. It signifies the shortest possible time. Uh, in the twinkling of an eye is just like it is in Greek, just like it is in English. It, it's this... It's the idea of throwing it. The twinkling of an eye is the time it takes to cast a glance or flutter an eyelid. That's how quickly our earthly bodies will be transformed at the rapture of the church. This change happens, he says, at the last trumpet. The last trumpet, that that imagery intensifies this suddenness of divine action, this theme of suddenness of divine action. By that trumpet, God will summon all his people to himself. This trumpet sound signals the end of the church age when all believers will be gathered together with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So this theme of the trumpet sounding is the signal of God's victory. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's presence is associated with the sound of the trumpet. Exodus 19, 
when Israel was before God manifests in when God manifests himself in Sinai, it says it came about on the third day when it was morning that there was thunder and lightning flashes upon this mountain and a thick cloud and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Later on in Zechariah's prophecy in chapter 9, verse 14, he says, speaking of how he will use Israel to effect his judgment on the nations, he says, then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning and the Lord God will blow the trumpet and will march in the storm winds of the south. Again, the picture, the imagery of the trumpet is uh, one with God. It, it speaks of God's imminent presence. The great trumpet blast signifies the return of the exiles to the land. We see that in Isaiah 27 and verse 13. And it also signifies the year of Jubilee, when, uh, when, when there would be a releasing of debts, and there would all the ancestral lands would be given back to their original families. And so, so the God's trumpet blast is a signal of release. It's a signal of return. It's a signal of, of rest and ultimately triumph and victory, right? When, when the, the people marched around, when Israel marched around Jericho, when they were ready to attack, what do they do? They blasted the trumpet because the victory was God's. And that is the picture that we see here as well. The trumpet announces this moment of change. God's royal decree having been given and victory belongs to the Lord. The dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. So what's the nature of this split second twinkling of an eye change? Verse 53 for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. And put simply, it's the end of our corruption. It's the end of our body's liability to decay, which is just not compatible with life in a new heaven, in a new earth with Christ. This mortal flesh is likened to a garment that we will take off, and what we will put on in its place is unchangeable, it is glorious and not the slightest bit susceptible to weakness or to decay. Interestingly, though, that while there is this radical, instantaneous transformation, there is still continuity of identity. You say, where are you getting that from? Look at verse 53 and 54. He says, for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Same in verse 54, this perishable will have put on the imperishable. This mortal will have put on immortality. The same identifiable, recognizable, accountable person that you and I are now will be transformed into a radically different body. You'll be you and I'll be me in eternity but in glorified heavenly bodies. You're not absorbed like a drop of water into the infinite abyss of the divine. So we will be us, but we will be wholly changed. The mystery of our resurrection is in any moment, instantaneous and complete transformation. The picture then of these verses is one of triumph. It is one of victory. 
that which God has promised, he will finally and completely bring to pass. And so almost seamlessly then, Paul moves from the mystery of our resurrection in verses 50 to 53 into what we'll call, secondly, our mastery over death in verses 54 to 57. Our mastery over death. What God has decreed and purposed from before time began will find its fulfillment at the resurrection. Verse 54, but this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality. Then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? By way of the cross, in Christ's victorious resurrection, God's victory over the curse has been secured. It, it is finished. Jesus said, but the full realization of that is yet to come. That's in the future. And um, it's it's at the resurrection that these things become operative in their fullness. And so Paul here, interestingly enough, he quotes Isaiah chapter 25 and verse 8 at the end of, of verse 54. And he also quotes Hosea chapter 13 and verse 14 in verse 55. He is using the language of the Bible to put words to the inexpressible joy that we'll experience at the resurrection. Isaiah, in context, proclaims that on the great day of salvation, God will swallow up death forever. And Paul says, death has been swallowed up in victory. At the resurrection, God will abolish death forever, just as he promised through the mouth of the prophet. That's what Paul's saying here. In light of death being swallowed up in God's victory, Paul proceeds to taunt death in verse 55, using the language of Hosea. The words, you know, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? These words communicate derision at death. They communicate mockery at mortality. And the net result is he is taunting death, personified. Paul has, remember, Paul has seen the risen Lord. He knows that he lives. And with that clear sight, he ridicules the enemy whose demise has been sealed through Christ's own death and resurrection. Death's victory has been overcome through Christ's victory. Death's stinger has been plucked out through Christ's resurrection. Death, therefore, no longer has any power over the believer. We will be raised and we will be changed into the likeness of Christ. And when that day comes, we will stand over death as David stood over Goliath, took his own sword, draw it out and killed him. That's the picture. John Owen, great Puritan theologian, preacher, writer in the 16th century, wrote a book. It's on my shelf. Some gentleman who attended our church for a while, he was kind enough to give it to me. He was clearing out his library, and he said, the death of death, the title of the book is The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. And I said, I love that title. Death is dead. Death is dead, and at the resurrection, death's power will be rendered utterly powerless. Just as the grave couldn't hold 
our Lord and Savior, the grave cannot hold you and it cannot hold me if we are in Christ, if we have clinged to him with simple, childlike faith. Death is a malicious adversary. There is no question about it. Tormenting people, but Christ has drawn its sting and it is harmless to those who are in him. Of course, death itself is not what's harmful. It's death as the wages of sin that makes death such a menace. For the believer, death is a passing out of this life into the presence of the Lord. It's immediate, like walking through a door. It's, it's, Paul says it's not loss, it's gain, Philippians 1. We, we, we know that portion of scripture well. Where sin has been pardoned, death has no deadly sting. But for those whose sin has not been covered by the blood of Christ, death is a mortal enemy. The sting is not death per se. The sting is sin. And sin has a powerful ally, and that is the law of God. As we see that in verse 56, he says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin, the ally of sin, is the law. So sin draws its power, if you will, from the law of God, which Paul says in Romans was, is good. It's holy and righteous and, and good. But here's the thing. The law is unable to bring us to, the knowledge, to, to salvation in and of itself. So the law acts like a mirror that sets before us the infinite and unattainable holiness of God. It, it helps us to see ourselves rightly, and it makes us guilty sinners and condemns us all. So the law is good because it reflects the righteousness of God, but it operates as an agent of sin because it either leads to, in and of itself, self-righteousness, or it leads to condemnation because it just indicts us for our wickedness. But whatever the case, the law becomes a death-dealing poison instead of a life-giving balm. And if that was the end of the story, it would be game over for every single one of us. Death would have the upper hand. Death would, death's thing, sin, drawing its power from the law would guarantee that not a single one of us would walk into God's kingdom. We would know, we would never know his rest. We would never know his peace. We would never know any of the fellowship of him or his people, but praise God, the death of death has been accomplished on our behalf through the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is victorious over death. In fact, uh, 2 Timothy 1 verse 10 says, he has abolished death. He has fulfilled the law, having become a curse for us, Galatians 3 verse 3. He has replaced the reign of sin that prevailed through Adam with the reign of grace. In Romans 5, he has drawn, Christ has drawn its sting. And so the good news of the gospel is this. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And all those who stand in and share in Christ's triumph over death and sin, all those who can confess in their heart of hearts the words of the hymn. We, we know it well, Rock of Ages. One of the verses says, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. He says, Could my zeal, no respite, no. Could my tears forever flow? 
all for sin, he says, could not atone. Thou, Christ must save, and Christ alone. And so I would simply ask you this morning, are you among those individuals? Can you confess what the hymn writer says, that nothing of our efforts are sufficient, only Christ can save? Because death has been swallowed up by victory in Christ. He stands over death, as it were, and mockingly asks, O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? And all who are united to Christ in faith are graciously made partakers, sharers, participants in that victory, but only if we have received Christ as Lord and Savior. So I ask, are you among them? Have you made the good confession? And if not, why not? What's wait, what are you waiting for? Because he will not refuse anyone who throws himself at his mercy. He abounds, the scripture says, the Lord abounds in loving kindness to all who call upon him. So look to him and live. Turn and trust in him. And to those of you who have come to him and whose lives are hidden with God in Christ, this is what we need to understand from the text. The victory is ours. Death's sting has no power. None. Death itself has been swallowed up in Christ's resurrection life. And while we still feel the weight of grief from sin's temporary effects, we in Christ have become master over death. And so when a believer in Christ passes away, it's mournful. And it may even seem from our limited vantage point, merciless, but it is momentary. Every Christian life, I love this truth, every Christian life ends in victory. For you in the future, death will never have the last word if you're in Christ. And that has an effect on how we live in the present. So we've seen the mystery of our resurrection, our mastery over death, and that leads thirdly in verse 58 to the mandate, our mandate to steadfast service. Our mandate to steadfast service. Verse 58, therefore... Because the victory belongs to us in Christ, Paul says, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Let nothing move you. So many Christians are prone to fickleness, shifting for no good reason from one position to the next. You and I need to get a firm grip on the reality of our resurrection. We need to grasp God's final plan for all people and all things so that we will not be shaken. I mean, our house is built on the rock. And so I would ask, are you weary in the walk? I mean, is, is the fighting, the temptation to sin that so easily entangles, are you weary well, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Are, are you downcast because it seems like your efforts in Christ aren't bearing the fruit that you want or, or any fruit at all? Paul says, keep abounding in the, in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor is not empty. D Does it seem like the sacrifice and the service and the struggle 
is for nothing. Well, we have to understand that what's done for the Lord is never done in vain, to no effect. Standing beneath every one of those acts of obedience and service and sacrifice is the sure word of Christ's own triumph over death, which guarantees that we will likewise conquer. When I first got saved, I remember singing a hymn in the church we were at. Um, some of you uh, are recovering back row Baptists. You'll know it well. Victory in Jesus. And uh, one, of the, one of the verses says, I, I heard about a mansion. He is built for me in glory. And I heard about the streets of gold beyond the crystal sea, about the angels singing in the old redemption story. And then it ends this way, in some sweet day, I'll sing up there the song of victory. And the chorus, I love this chorus, everyone belting it out. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath that cleansing flood. That's the message of this chapter. And this verse, these verses that we're looking at this morning. We experience the death of death in our resurrection with Christ. And I pray that, that you are sharers in that victory this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us to ourselves. We, we know our hearts and we know how far short of your holy standards we fall. And yet you sought us and bought us with your redeeming blood. Lord, may we stand victorious, in, not in ourselves, but in Christ this morning. And if there's any, any at all, who have not put their trust in you, have not turned and clung to Christ and looked to him for righteousness, for forgiveness, for uh, grace for each day, Lord, I pray that you would draw those hearts to yourself and that you would strengthen us as your people to walk victorious, knowing that um, death's sting has been removed. Uh, Christ's victory has swallowed up the curse and all who are connected to the curse. And Lord, may we, may we herald that good news for all to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.